0: nothing hey there we go there's the winning numbers well if you all are as surprised to see me up here oh wait how was that going to go again if you're surprised to see me up here let's hope i'm a little bit more prepared than you all were this morning when you beheld me up here so um we're going to be looking this morning at colossians chapter 4 pastor jeremy uh, is out of town this weekend he's covering some funerals up in new hampshire um and I'm going to do my best to try to make a sports analogy since he's not here and he has so much trouble with that. Um, <laughs> the, the elders have uh, reached deep into the bullpen this morning, so here we are. <laughs> all right. Um, we're going to be looking primarily at verses 2 through 6 in Colossians chapter 4. Um, our hope is that by the time we leave here this morning, we will all have a better understanding... That prayer does take hard work, but it is a proven catalyst for the advance of the gospel and that we are called, that we are called to make the best use of our time to reach a fallen world. So some background with Colossians, because you may be asking, why did he jump in way back there? Well, it's a great passage. Um, I've parachuted in in chapter four, but Church tradition holds uh, that this letter to the Colossians was written from a prison in Rome by Paul, uh, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. The layout of Colossians is certainly Pauline. Uh, It starts with his typical salutations. He gets heavy on doctrine early on, transitions into practical living, And now we find ourselves here in Paul's last exhortation just before he begins his final greeting. Epaphras is mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 4. He's a convert of Paul and is most likely the founder of the church at Colossae. And he is passionately committed to see his church grow spiritually. Uh, In verse 12, he's described, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He prays in a struggling manner for the spiritual health of the body, and he knows that the eternal circumstances are at stake. Epaphras has traveled over a thousand miles to visit Paul in this prison to let him know what's going on within the church. So it says quite, about, says quite a bit about him and his willingness to work to advance the gospel. So Paul's letter is preventative. Uh, it stresses the supremacy of Christ and it stresses the continuing of walking in the faith. However, the content of this letter was to be shared with other churches. Later on in chapter 4 of Colossians in verse 16, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So they had this, for lack of a better word, a pen pal system where the letters were being changed, and Paul is telling them, read the letter from Laodicea and have that letter read to you all. The point this letter is written for all believers. That's your first blank there in part C, part point one. It's for all believers. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, I have no seminary training. I took a small spiritual formations class just after college. Um, I didn't do well. (laughs) But here I am. Um, But I am fluent. So my Greek and Hebrew struggles, right? I I don't do well with those. I am fluent in Appalachian, right? (laughs) Very fluent in Appalachian. And back home, we say all y'all when it includes all of us, okay? And that's the idea that Paul's conveying here. This letter is for all y'all. So as we read this, and you find yourselves maybe cringing at some of the exhortations, or, or the substance that Paul is trying to convey here, keep in mind that we can't wiggle out of this as much as we want to. It is written for all of us. So, so let us read from the Word of God. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, person let's pray heavenly father we are thankful to find ourselves on this side of you your son the cross and being able to glory in the work that paul has put forth here in his letter Um, give us the eyes to see and ears to hear and the hearts to understand the points that he conveys here in this letter We thank you so much for the body and the chance to gather here, and may these words motivate us to reach a lost and dying world. Amen. All right, point two, Paul's tutorial on prayer. So in verse two, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And within that first phrase, there's so much to unpack. Continue steadfastly in prayer. You're blank here. All believers are to pray with a persistent mindset. Persistent mindset. So I'm going to pack on persistence a little bit here. Uh, It means to to not give up, to endure, uh, to have an idea or a state that you want to achieve and to continue working towards that goal, regardless of what's thrown at you. My wife, Anna, I'm going to Mention her this morning she has lots of great attributes um, one of those is persistence uh, and I promise I'm not getting myself in trouble with her I, I had her proofread uh, this part here but she persisted for 11 long years that we were going to move to Iowa now for you all that are visiting this morning or may not know and didn't get the context earlier with the Appalachian dialect Um, I grew up in Kentucky, and after we were married, I had a dream job. I had everything that I wanted. I had no other place that I personally wanted to be. But my wife had moved uh, from out here. She'd grown up in Atlantic, um, and she found herself in a foreign land. And uh, for 11 years, she persisted that we were going to move back. And it it would get to the point to where I would dread trips to Iowa because— It would stir her affections for this place, and we would leave and head back, and uh, she would be like, we just, we've got to move, and I'm sitting there going, but I don't want to. Everything that I love and enjoy is there. Well, we see what God had in mind as I am standing here before you today as a resident of Iowa now for uh, five years, so it's been Been a blast. But she persisted relentlessly in this. Now, scripturally, we look no further than Luke chapter 18 to see another great example of persistence. Um, In Luke 18, we have the story of the widow, the persistent widow. And it says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city that kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, my wife did not beat me down to get me out here, but the point here that we want to make is that we need to be persistent in prayer. Paul wants us to be persistent. To be persistent. The widow kept at it. She kept coming to the judge. We don't know exactly how long it took her uh, to convince him otherwise, but she was persistent. Paul is telling us and telling the church to endure prayer and to not give up on placing the needs before the Lord and the spiritual needs of the body to him in prayer. So, our next point. All believers are to pray with vigilance. Your blank there is believers. Paul says being watchful in it. At the very basic level, Paul is saying don't fall asleep. If you're like me, you've had those days where you couldn't get up and spend dedicated time with the Lord. You go about your day. You find yourself at night going, I didn't pray today. Let's pray. And you're laying on your bed and praying. Before you know it, your eyes are getting heavy and you're falling asleep. So that at the very basic level is what Paul is saying. He wants us to stay awake. We have the example of Peter, James, and John in Matthew 26 when Jesus was praying in the garden and he returns to find them falling asleep. But Paul is reaching for something more in this passage. The idea of vigilance goes much more further than simply staying awake. The idea of vigilance can be better described by the way that our senses Leap into the highest level of alertness whenever we encounter our fight or flight mechanism. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. So, as you turn, a good example of fight or flight in this level of alertness often occurs with security teams, safety teams, our police officers, and first responders alertness to them is knowing what is happening when they go into a situation. If it's a fire or a car accident that our responders are going to, they need to survey what is going on to make sure that they're not going to further harm themselves to order, in order to make the rescue attempt or whatever it may be. Many carry and conceal classes will also talk of situational awareness. And situational awareness begins with the knowledge of the area around you let's say you go to dinner and you corner yourself into the room where you can see all the exits you can see the entry points you're making note of suspicious people or you're even making note of conversations that are occurring that may be escalating uh, in tension or complexity or elevating in volume so you kind of sense that there could be a fight going on That's a simple example of what situational awareness is. It's being aware of what is around you. So let's read here in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 18 and then we'll bump back up further. But I want to make a point out of verse 18 here. So in verse 18 of Ephesians 6, Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He says, to that end, keep alert. But to what end? And that's where we'll jump further up in our text. We can jump back up to a, verse 11. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And then in verse, verses 14 and 15, he begins to spell out what those pieces of equipment are. What Paul has done is he's painted a picture of a warrior or a soldier who is ready to go into battle. And then he says, To that end, be alert in your prayers. Why? Because we are fighting the devil. Verse 11 or 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. I often do not give the devil credit for the work that he does. I allow my day to go about. If I see anything evil, I tend to blame it on someone just not being smart. If we see things going on, I typically chalk it up to bad decisions, and I don't give Satan the credit that Paul is giving Satan here. We simply have to be on guard, and we must be alert in our prayers and being watchful of what's going on around us. Satan is at work to halt the advance of the gospel, and Paul knows that. And he's asking the church here to be prayerful and alert in those things. He moves on later in the verse and says, With thanksgiving. Your next blank here. All believers are to pray with a heart full of thanks. A heart full of thanks. Thanks. Paul alludes to gratefulness and thankfulness earlier in his letter. In chapter 1, he has one of the most beautiful prayers that can be uttered as he's thankful for the people that he's writing the letter to. But he brings it up here again because Paul knows that thankfulness is an accelerant for humility and a poison to complaining. He wants the church to be humble when we petition our Lord. And he knows that if we're humble, we're much more likely to avoid complaining. And why are we to avoid complaining? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. What's at stake here when we grumble and complain is our testimony. Our lights, as they shine to an outward world towards outsiders, can be completely ruined if we walk around with a grumbling and complaining attitude. And Paul is telling us that it has little place in our prayers. Now, there are plenty of prayers in the Psalms where questions are asked, but those are not persistent, they are not consistent. The example that Paul here, the sandwich, I'm going to use another food analogy, the sandwich that Paul is laying here is persistence, watchfulness, and thankfulness. And when you, when you go by that, we must remember that we cannot complain in our prayers for them to be effective. We have a war to wage and to fight with the help of our Lord. So, what does verse 2 mean for us? How can it apply to our lives? Well, Paul is calling us to an intentional, vigilant, and thankful approach to prayer. If you're saying to yourself, my life is so busy, there's so much going on, carving out time to be intentional in prayer is just too difficult. Not to worry. It's common for all of us. Anybody in this room would probably tell you they struggle with the same thing, and that's why Paul is addressing it here. Remember that Satan wants you to be too busy. He wants you to be too distracted to pray. That is one of his strategies. One way to combat this is to come up with lists. It's a practical thing to do. Create a list of things that you're thankful for. They can be material things. They can be spiritual things. uh, They can be praying for the body of believers around you. Pray specifically for things that you can be vigilant for. If you know that Satan is doing work with someone that you know, pray for that person. Obviously, we're going to pray for the ailments and the needs and the physical things that we typically do. But imagine if we were to go beyond that and begin praying for people within our body to be fully assured, to stand mature. Those are the things that we can put on these lists to pray for. And finally, another list that we can make is a list of distractions. If we're honest with ourselves, there's plenty of things that distract us from spending time in God's Word and praying If you have a habit of doing this at work, at your desk, and you find yourself being distracted, you may want to consider finding another place to pray. If it's your phone, I know this is going to be a sore subject. If it's your phone, dedicate time during the day to put it away. Spend time in prayer, even if it's 15, 20 minutes. The idea that Paul's wanting us to leave with here is that we are to be building these habits so that we can be effective in our prayers. If it's your kids that can be a distraction, if you stay at home, work with your spouse to find time during the day for you to be able to draw away and pray so that you can pray undistracted. It comes down to spending dedicated time to the Lord in prayer. Remember that there's a war being waged here and that we could pray as Epaphras prayed, praying for, m- assurance, for maturity, assurance, and resistance to temptation. There's just so much, so much great stuff here that, that Paul is addressing. All right, so as we move into point three, Paul has asked the church, or basically said, told the church how they are to pray. Uh, he's given them that sandwich that I mentioned earlier. We are to be thankful, we are to be vigilant, and we are to be persistent in our prayer. And Paul understands that God is going to use the church to pray for his ministry and for the advance of the gospel. And so now we're going to see him shift his focus to begin to rally the troops to pray for him specifically as he's working to advance the gospel. So point three, Paul's request that the church pray specifically for his ministry's needs. You're going to see specific items here prayed. Sometimes we will say and ask for prayers that can be vague. But when our prayers are specific, they have have a a great effect. And Paul is calling us to do that here. So your next blank. For opportunities for the word. For opportunities for the word. Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word. Paul is asking the church to pray for him and his team here. The team is mentioned in chapter 4 a little later on. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Epaphras, I've already mentioned, Luke the physician. These are all names of people that are part of what Paul is working to accomplish in that region. And he's asking the church to pray for them. A few weeks ago, we had a friend of ours visit our home from our church in Kentucky. She's currently serving on the continent of Africa in the mission field. And it was encouraging to hear her stories of what was occurring and, and what she was seeing, but I kept hearing her say that they were praying for open doors, they were praying for opportunities, and I marveled because I was preparing for the sermon at the time, and I kept thinking, how marvelous that our missionaries today are praying the same exact words Paul wrote to these churches: pray for open doors, pray for opportunities." that the word would go forth. The early church was constantly running into obstacles to advance the gospel. Um, Paul wants to make the most of every opportunity with his team here. He wants his team to be able to go where the spirit leads, and he's asking the church to pray for those opportunities. Satan was working to hinder Paul's ministry and their work to advance the gospel. Think about it. He's thrown rioters. He's thrown mobs. He's thrown persecution. He's thrown shipwrecks at him. He's doing everything he can to stagnate the work of Paul and his team. But regardless of where Paul is sitting physically, he's asking his allies to pray because he knows what prayers will accomplish. Paul sees himself as the weak link here in the ministry chain, in the ministry. He's In prison, fighting the spiritual battle, but he's confident that the Lord will do his part. He's familiar with Isaiah and the passage there in Isaiah 55, and I'll read that to you now. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall accomplish that which I purpose." and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So what do opportunities look like for us? Paul is confident that the word will go forth and do his part, but for us today, what do opportunities look like for us here in the States? Are they conversations with our children, especially those that are corrective in nature? Are they conversations with a coworker who's just found out that their parent has just a few months to live? Are they conversations with a fellow teacher or someone who lives down the street, a neighbor, who calls to ask you your random thoughts on the end of time? These are all opportunities for us to be able to advance the gospel in our own lives and to be faithful. Paul goes on and he says, "...to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison." on account of which i am in prison so there's no blank here but the point there is that paul is asking the church to pray for the revelation of the mystery of the gospel paul's mandate which has resulted in him in being in prison is to bring the good news of christ to the gentiles that's his goal that's his prize that's his passion if you will but notice that paul has not asked the church to pray for his release specifically in this passage he could have i know i certainly probably would be prone to be asking people to pray for my release from prison but not paul paul feels that he can still accomplish the work from behind bars and from satan's perspective he's landed a big blow he has the team leader he has the the head of the group in a prison camp basically behind bars Most teams or militaries would fall when their leader has occurred such a defeat. Communication would be disrupted. All sorts of things could go awry. But not Paul. He's written four letters that we know of from prison. And here he is asking the church to pray that opportunities would abound despite the obstacles that surround him and his team. So have you ever been able to look beyond a period beyond a period of suffering beyond a trial knowing and trusting that god is in control and that his grace is enough if you haven't you certainly will and for many of us these are the moments when our faith is truly tested and grows as James says, consider them all a joy. So again, Paul is making it clear to declare the mystery of the gospel. It's his call to bring that news to the Gentiles. And up until Paul, that has not been made. That's why it's referred to as a mystery. The Jews knew about it, but they did not know that this new grace was going to be extended to all people. Paul goes on and says that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And your point here, for effectiveness through boldness and clarity. For effectiveness through boldness and clarity. Your blank being clarity. So how many of us could easily articulate the gospel? If I were to catch you on break when we're drinking coffee and eating donuts, how many of you all could clearly articulate what the gospel is? About ten or twelve years ago I came across a book called What is the Gospel? And he opens with some challenging thoughts that there are many believers out there when they are asked the question would struggle. We may believe the gospel, we may have committed our lives to the Lord, but when it comes to articulating it and making it clear, we struggle. In fact, he includes an interview of a Christian artist that I want to read to you. That artist was simply asked the question, What is the gospel? It says, What a great question. I guess I'd probably, my instinct is to say that it's Jesus coming, living, and being resurrected, and his inaugurating the already and the not yet of all things, being restored to himself. And that happening by way of himself, being made right of all things. That process, both beginning and being a reality in the lives and hearts of believers. And yet a day coming when it will be more fully realized. But the good news of this kingdom coming, the inaugurating of his kingdom coming, that's my instinct. If you are just as confused as I am, you're okay. You followed along. If you were concerned where I was going with that, there was no place to go. Other than the fact that this Christian artist was not able to articulate the gospel in any way, shape, or form. You all were worried there for a second, weren't you? (laughs) There was no mention of God's sovereignty. There was no mention of man's predicament as a fallen sinner. There was no mention of the atoning work of Christ. And there was no mention at all of man's response to that. That, my friends, my brothers and sisters, is the gospel. And Paul understands what is at stake eternally if this is not communicated clearly. And again, he's asking the church to pray for a clear presentation of the gospel so that it is fully known and understood by the people. He mentions that in Colossians 1 to make the word of God fully known. All right, so here's another exhortation for us. Remember what we covered in my opening remarks. This letter is written for all y'all, right? All of us. It's written for all the churches. We should be praying for our missionaries that we both support corporately as a body and the ones we know personally. We should be praying for their safety. They should be on those lists that I mentioned that will help us keep our prayers intentional and vigilant. We should see ourselves as allies in the battle that's taking place in the areas where they are serving. We should be praying for their ministry to thrive and for to open doors for the word and for the gospel to be made clear. Practically, before you leave here today, you can take your smartphone and walk out into the hallway and take pictures of the missionaries that we support here as a church. In all honesty, I don't pray for them by name, and that's going to allow us to be more vigilant on our prayers when we take those little steps of being more intentional with our prayers. In fact, go beyond that. Do your best to keep up with where they are, on the reports that they're given each quarter our, uh, our deacon of missions comes up and gives a report. We should be paying closer attention to those so that we can pray for those men and women that are out there on the front lines. We should be lifting up these brothers and sisters in Christ. But let's not leave ourselves out of the front line of ministry. It would be really easy to stop here and I'd have plenty of time for a closing song. But Paul doesn't stop there. He presses on in this passage. And so a question that I would like for you all to consider as we move forward here is what would our ministries, our ministries, look like as domestic missionaries? Now, we are obviously waiting for a home and have hope in a home that is yet to be lived in. So in a sense, we are foreign missionaries. But as domestic missionaries here in the States, what would it look like if we prayed for doors to be opened? If we prayed that the reality of Christ be clearly communicated. Some of you may be asking, how would we even get started? And that brings us to verses 5 and 6. Paul's admonishment for wise living amongst outsiders. Point four. Paul's admonishment for wise living amongst outsiders. Your first blank here. Believers' lifestyles should be distinct from the outsider's. Believers' lifestyles should be distinct from the outsider. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, if you were at the state fair a few weeks ago, you probably saw lots of interesting people. But I promise you, you probably could spot a dad from a mile away. We dads are pretty distinct. We have cool white shoes that we wear there's debates whether they're the New Balance or the Nike Air Monarchs. Um, we do, we, we are often distinct. We have shirts that have jokes on them. As a matter of fact, one shirt that I saw at the fair said, this isn't a dad bod, it's a father figure, right? <laughs> it's not a dad bod, it's a father figure. It is a joke on a shirt. It's fantastic. Dads can be distinct and, another thing of distinction this morning I'll throw in here Um, there's another very handsome man that attends this church that i often get confused with Uh, my brother-in-law Timothy Uh, just this morning in fact I was walking out to the car and I was told hey thank you so much for fixing my dryer vent and I'm like yeah no problem (laughs) that that wasn't me that wasn't me. That was my, my brother, Tim. So, Tim, we got to do something to make ourselves more distinct for one another. I think he may go with a Fu Manchu is what he told me this morning. So my wayward point here to bring us back is that as Bible-believing followers, our selfless approach to wise living should be distinct from those around us, from outsiders. Our morality will often stand out, but even in the way that we conduct our businesses The way we speak to other people in our offices, the way we avoid gossip at work, these will often cause us to stand out. When we help other people in need is another great way. But there are plenty of good people out there that do good works, that do good things, that probably aren't true believers. Listen to this quote by a guy named J. Max Stiles who wrote a book called Marks of a Messenger. He puts it here pretty clearly. He says, all actions of kindness and compassion and justice must be done with the hope to share our faith. Otherwise, we are not upholding the gospel. We share the good news always open to doing good. And we do good always with the hope of sharing our faith. We never divorce the two. So the point is here, we can do good works. We can do good things, but we do that with the hope of being able to to share the gospel if you would flip to Romans 12 flip to Romans 12 we'll pick up in verses 14 Romans 14 it says bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Church, if we are living wisely, if we are taking the words that Paul wrote here in Romans, to heart, we will be distinct to those around us and to the outsiders that we come in contact with. Paul goes on and says, making the best use of the time. You're blank here. Believers' interactions with outsiders are time limited. Your blank being time limited. Now, the New King James uses the phrasing redeeming the time. And have you ever thought that each moment of each day is a unique opportunity. Each passing moment is a unique opportunity. And in some of our cases, we may be able to redeem the time. And that's what Paul is going to be calling our attention to. Consider the people that you interact with regularly. Obviously, you're going to have some relationships that are more intimate with others than others. You're going to know the soccer mom a little less than you probably would a coworker. You're going to know your neighbor a little better than the checkout clerk. But think about how unique these opportunities are that the Lord places in front of us every day. Every day, this uniqueness happens, and we are there to be lights to live wisely among them. This passage should cause us to feel a sense of urgency, knowing that how we walk and how we use our time is critical in the advance of the gospel. D.A. Carson wrote a great book that I just absolutely enjoy. It's called Praying with Paul. And I want to read a quote from that book here. He says, When we pray with eternity's values in view, we are driven to pray for people because people like you and me are the ones who must give an account to God on the last day. Our master is returning. And one day, everyone." will stand before a righteous and holy God. Your wayward family member, your co-workers, your neighbors, the clerk at the courthouse, and even the mailman. Sorry about that, Scott. (laughs) Even the mailman. These are all people that the Lord has put in our lives for a reason. And if we look at making the most of our time, redeeming the time, We will find ourselves praying for them and asking for opportunities and open doors with them. All right, we get to verse 6. Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. You're blank here. Believers' words should become habitually gracious and preservative. Gracious and preservative. When Paul is speaking of gracious words, he means words that are edifying and fitting. In Ephesians 4.29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul's ultimate purpose here is that our speech would give grace to those who are hearing. Not tolerance necessarily, but grace. There may be times when we find ourselves in difficult conversations with outsiders, and our goal should always be, to give grace to those who hear, a true and biblical grace. Its content should be meant for their good, and the delivery is done in edifying tones. That's what he's getting at by gracious. But Paul doesn't stop at gracious. He says that our speech should always be seasoned with salt. So here's another food analogy for you. Salt has two functions, as does our speech. It can make food more desirable, and it preserves. So there are two things that generally happen when, that we generally happen and hope for when we share food with other people, right? We've made a dish. The person who is sharing the food has found the dish to be so pleasing to them that they are both confident and hopeful that others will find the food equally pleasing. Therefore, they've taken the time to prepare it, to get it together, to run to the grocery store in hopes that that person will see it and experience it in the same way. And hopefully, that other person who the food is being shared with finds the food delicious and flavorful as well, so much that it brings enjoyment and delight to their taste buds. The hope is that that desire has been piqued with that food, and they turn around and they ask you for that recipe Right? That's what we're going for when we usually share a dish. We want it to be good, we want it to be shared, and we want them to enjoy it so that they want to experience it again for themselves. It's the same with our salty speech. The way we credit the Lord for our successes, the way we speak of our spouses in honoring ways, the way we hope in our future when the world fears death are ways that our speech can be salty. And they should be shared with the aim that it will pique the desire of those hearing it. The second way that our speech relates to salt is that it has a preservative effect. The Egyptians were the first given credit for salt-curing meat. I was just reading in a little house in the big woods last night to my girls, and they were salting the hams and salting the deer meat. And I thought, wow, that's appropriate. But sodium draws out the moisture that causes bacteria, and it dries it so that it preserves. Basically, salt keeps food from spoilage, and our words, when they are salty, God can use them in the redemptive work of lost souls and preserve souls for all eternity. Our last point here, point D, so that you may know how you ought to speak, or so you may know how you ought to answer each person. You're blank here. Believers' responses should be catered to the individual circumstance. Believers' responses should be catered to the individual circumstance. The idea here is context. If you see a teenager walking down the road with a rifle, anyone would probably begin to get a little bit nervous. But allow me to give you some context. It's the first weekend in December in rural Iowa. Suddenly, you're dealing with a young teenager walking down the road. The context is always critical when we think about our circumstances. So what Paul is stressing here is that as a result of our lifestyle, our day-to-day efforts, our salty speech, all of these will intrigue outsiders as the Holy Spirit works in them. If we are walking wisely and our speech is seasoned and gracious with salt, the world will take notice. So as, he says, so as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, we must ge- be ready to give a response. Therefore, our answers should be centered on the person and the people we're interacting with. They should have the appropriate context. In John chapter 4, as we close here, we are told of the story of the woman at the well. Jesus has a conversation with her about water and wells, and he's beginning to take the very context in mind here. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst again. And their conversation continues to move on. He's taken the individual circumstance into account. And he's setting an example in gracious words that are effective and have the end and result in mind. Because he goes on to say in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, Jesus says. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You see, Jesus' words here were gracious. They were effective. They had a point to bring truth into her life. He didn't candy coat it, but he made sure it was catered to her in the context. He also talks to Nicodemus and the rich young ruler, but he does it in a different way and has a different result. So again, Believers' responses should be catered to the individual. Think about the way that we would speak to a professor who's struggling with creationism, how that would be much different than the family friend that has lost their child at a young age. God will give us the words, and may we be bold enough to utter them at the appropriate time so that God gets the glory. As the worship team comes up, may we remember to be persistent vigilant and thankful in our prayers and to lift up those working including ourselves in advancing the gospel may we remember that our wise living and our speech also is meant to advance the gospel for if we do as it says in second corinthians we will be the aroma of christ to god among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the exhortations that Paul has given us here to walk wisely among outsiders, to allow our speech to be salty, for our words to be gracious so that they have an effect for all eternity. May we pray with thankfulness. May we pray with vigilance. And may we pray in a perseverant manner. We thank you for our ministry teams, both abroad and here within the church. We ask you to bless our work as we go forward to advance the gospel. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.